Welcome to Let's Face the Facts, the rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. Join us each week as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show. And now, here's your host of Let's Face the Facts, the wonderful David Almeida! Thank you, Matthew Arder. Welcome back. It's another week, another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. So, this week we're continuing our small sabbatical from season eight. On top of all the other busy stuff going on, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. Yeah, I'm sick. On top of everything else. Yeah, seriously, it never ends. It's not the Rona. I did check. I'm just have a little head cold here anyway. But that means this week for you guys, it's another episode of TV Talkaholics. Again, as I explained last week, this is the separate monthly podcast that Matthew and I do. The Patreon supporters, affectionately known as Tutti Fruities, get exclusive first access to this show. And if you like what you hear, you can uh, hear the entire series so far, the entire TV Talkaholics library, as well as future episodes with a $3 a month sponsorship level. You can go to uh, the Patreon. The link is in the show notes. So now let's journey back to July of 2020. Matthew and I decided to watch and discuss Lisa Welchel's big-screen film debut called The Double MacGuffin. I'm sure you're wondering, what is the deal with that awful title? And uh, we will be discussing that for sure, along with a lot of other things. As you see, this is not a short episode. The entire movie is on YouTube, so it is available for you to watch if you are so inclined. So uh, let's not waste any more time and get to it. Let's Face the Facts proudly presents TV Talkaholics Episode 8. Everybody, welcome. It is now episode eight of TV Talkaholics. I am here. This is David. Say hello, Matthew. Hello, Matthew. Uh, I will never get our opening right, David. Yeah, we. I, I just decided to abandon the. Um... <clears throat> so many people have abandoned my opening, so <laughs> <laughs> you might as well not be alone in that. Oh well. Um, we have a lot of stuff to talk about. 
Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you are able to watch the movie ahead of time. I hope you do. I hope you watch it on YouTube because Matthew and I today are talking about the double MacGuffin. When you type that into your computer, it does autocorrect it to the double McMuffin. Yeah, it does. And and that's a completely different movie that uh, yeah. came up on on Xtube, I think. And, yeah. Uh, so is Double McGruffin. That's a different one. <laughs> double McStuffin. Yeah, Doc McStuffins um, <laughs> comes up. So yeah. But no, no, no. We are talking <laughs> but, about uh, the Double McGuffin, the cinematic masterpiece released <laughs> on June first, nineteen seventy nine. Whoa. And. Uh, now, when you say "woof," is that your initial review? Ah, I, that's my initial review. Ah, uh, like, yeah. it, it wasn't an unenjoyable way to spend an afternoon. No, no, it wasn't. But it was not something that I'd be like, y'all gotta go see this movie, The Double yeah. McMuffin. <laughs> yeah. And luckily, dear listeners, the, the name of the movie is not something we need to say for the rest of the yeah of the podcast because <laughs> yeah. it's not like there's somebody named Double McGuffin yeah. in the in the show or anything it's, it is arguably a very strange and unnecessary title i'm going to start right off here i'm i'm spilling the tea or slinging the yeah. shit right now going i think one of the problems with this movie is its title that is a big problem with it because as an actor, I did not know what a McMuffin was. A, a McGuffin. Or that. <laughs> but um, I have but to... Admit, luckily, Orson Welles tells you what a McMuffin is at the beginning of the movie. So yeah, when you need somebody to explain what your title means in the first 30 seconds, chances yeah. are good. That is not a great title choice. <laughs> a McGuffin is a term coined by the world's foremost teller of suspense stories to label that secret, elusive, mysterious something that everyone in the story is trying to find or find out about. It is, in effect, the pretext of the plot, the catalyst that brings the characters together and causes them to act or interact, the vial of microfilm, the money, the missing papers, the murderer, the motive, the single reason that causes the entire story to happen. Usually there's only one. <laughs> I will also argue, if yeah. you remove the title and the Orson Welles voiceover at the beginning of the film, and you just showed it and said, what title comes to mind? What do you think we should call this movie before we release it? Nobody would fucking think of McGuffin. <sighs> Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So th this movie's called The Double MacGuffin because the writer, director, producer fancied himself so fucking clever as to have two things be the catalyst for this particular plot. And he thought, oh, the double MacGuffin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double down on an arcane reference that no one is going to recognize or understand. And, and it's a shame. Because I think this movie could have been called Kid Caper with two Ks. And, <laughs> and it would have been, yeah. <laughs> Only two. Stop it. I know what you're thinking. You want to try that again? No. <laughs> not, or not. maybe two maybe two Cs. 
That's right. I don't know. Black Lives Matter. It's Kid Caper with two C's. You're right. But um, let's start off by giving a general synopsis of what happens in the movie. And then we can start breaking it down and really uh, hacking it to bits and destroying it and rewriting it like we enjoy doing. So uh, let me let you start this. How would you uh, describe this as like an elevator pitch sort of a movie? Uh, Oh, my God. Um, These kids that I guess you put together in are in a boarding school. I guess um, that for would well, you would not pick to put together as a group of friends, no, nope. because they're not really of the same age or no. I don't know. So this mismatched <laughs> a mismatched group of of youngsters of ragtag um, ruffian adolescents. Yeah. Yes, they find this. Um, they stumble upon an international murder plot. Yeah, exactly. And uh, faced with no assistance from the proper authorities, this group of four, later five, well, six, actually five, later six friends uh, are able to stop an assassination. Uh, uh, yeah. In this little podunk attack. town located in... Uh, Virginia. Virginia? Yeah. Is that where, did they say? Mm-hmm. I totally missed that. They are supposed yeah. to be in Virginia. Okay. They're out. They're outside of Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. That makes sense then. I mean, it is definitely Southern. It was actually shot in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, looking at some of the information on IMDb, we have, uh, the film was shot in January of 1978, Matthew. Yeah. And this wasn't released until the summer of 79. It was a year. I wonder why. (laughs) Uh, The reason why we're doing this, which we probably should have said earlier, is that this is the big screen debut of Matthew's close personal friend, Lisa Quelchel. Yes. And she's wonderful. She is. She's really good in it. And this is literally... Lisa Welchel between the Mickey Mouse Club, because that went off the air in 78. And then the pilot for The Facts of Life, the backdoor pilot, was filmed in early 79. And then the series actually began in the fall of 79. So, um, yeah. So that's, that's where we are, Facts of Life adjacent, trying to keep ourselves somewhat close to task here. But the movie uh, doesn't just star Lisa Welchel in a tiny supporting role. The actual stars of the movie are Academy Award winner Ernest Borgnine, Academy Award winner George Kennedy, and Muppet Show guest Elka Summer. And Matthew has lost his shit again. <laughs> Alka Summer, who I believe, if I counted correctly, has three lines, <laughs> only two of which you can hear. Exactly. And one of them she delivers like, oh, but that is so interesting. Like, why huh, Why would they have known about a plot to kill? Like, she stammers over the line and you're like, is that an acting choice? Or, bitch, did you not even look at the script before you showed up on set? <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, my Lord. So let's get to some more uh, sort of statistical stuff. This movie is really the brainchild of Joe Camp, 
who was the producer, the writer, and he co-wrote the story, but wrote the whole screenplay. He directed it. And Joe Camp is best known and really only known for doing the Benji movies. And it shows. <laughs> yes, it does. As to why Hollywood would never give him another film to make after he made this. Like, and let's be honest, like I look when you look at his credits, it's like, do you remember Benji Saves Christmas or whatever? You know, it's like yeah. he did one good Benji film and then five there were five Sequels. other Benji movies. Yeah. And for God's yeah, sake. Yeah, Benji bites a boner and then yeah. you got um Oh, and he also did, interestingly, he did Oh Heavenly Dog, which is the Chevy Chase movie where it's about a man who dies and has to come back to the mortal world to correct something or fix something, but he has to do it as a dog. Yeah, as a dog. And the dog, <laughs> <laughs> and the dog looks like Benji, and his name is Benjamin. So it's kind of a Benji is a ghost movie, but not a Benji movie, which is why it's called Oh Heavenly Dog. So yes, the Benji movie started in 74, and he would go on to make more Benji properties as his career progressed, but not really much other than that. No. What's weird about it to me is that it's clear that it wants to be a family-friendly movie. Mm -hmm. But then the choices made within that are so strange. Yep. IMDb points out that in one cut of the movie, at the beginning when we see a person looking through windows through crosshairs like an assassination attempt, there is a woman with bare titties just putting a robe on. There's, there's, That's there's, the version I saw on YouTube. That's on YouTube, yes. The titty version is on YouTube, ladies and gentlemen. And the, the youngest kid in the group, which is his character, the character's name is Homer. Homer, on a couple of occasions, is, what the hell is going on here? What the hell have we gotten ourselves into? Yeah. And uh, one of the other kids, Billy Ray, there is a holy shit when he realizes they thought they were safe and they're not. So there's a couple little just droplets here of, okay, that's not family friendly. Right. Why would you, if they're not integral to the plot... You could have just as easily had him say, holy crap, the phone's yeah. off the hook. Or, or, oh no, the phone is off yeah, the hook. Exactly. It's, it's yeah. Not it's to just, be upstaged by the overtly long opening credits that take place watching all of these boys in their underwear swimming and frolicking, even. One kid, like, pulled his pants down in the opening scene. Yeah, he and, moons the other kids, yeah. And it's just, it's like, okay, I was uncomfortable <laughs> by the time it ended. I, <laughs> like, I didn't like that at all. It all goes back to this director. I'm like, what kind of psychopath is he? Like, <laughs> I mean, and I don't mean this in a slender way, but people that generally write, produce, and direct their own film and write the songs for the mm -hmm. film are, yep. I mean, can you imagine the ego that this dude has that like, <laughs> like the, I am always right kind of attitude. Like I just, <laughs> I, I would like to have a conversation with Joe Cam. He did ask Orson Welles to do the voiceover. So, you know, on some, it was on some level, it was, well, you know, my mentor, I'm, I'm kind of following in his footsteps, you know, with, uh, 
you know, Citizen Kane, Double MacGuffin, you know, it's kind of yin and yang, isn't it? Benji saves Hanukkah. <laughs> Let's talk about the characters. That's a good starting point. Okay. As we are kind of still stumbling to find our way around uh, how to talk about things. So we have, basically, it's four boys and a girl. And the four boys are friends. We presume they they all go to a boarding school. It takes a while for it to become apparent. And the fact is, I looked up their uh, ages and their names. We have these characters. Um, we have the youngest one of the group. His name is Homer. The actor's name is Greg Hodges. And uh, then we have Specs, who is... Uh, the African-American boy who is played by Dion Pride, son of Charlie Pride. And uh, he also performs the two theme songs, the opening theme and the closing theme pop tunes uh, that our writer-director Megalomaniac wrote. Then we've got uh, Jeff Nicholson is the actor who plays Billy Ray. And he is like the country western guy. He's always wearing a cowboy hat and... He he is, looks to me like he's the love child of Matthew McConaughey and Seth Meyers. He is real cute. He is cute. He is cute. He is. He's really cute. And then the other one is Foster. He's sort of a Ralph Macchio type, kind of like, I think the Italian kid, his name is, the actor is Vincent Spano. Spano. And um, Cute as well. He's still working. He's still very active. He works a lot. If he's working... He is the only one. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not saying that to be bitchy, ladies and yeah. gentlemen. I'm saying the other three people that we just mentioned, literally this is their only credit. There's nothing on IMDb. They don't even have a clickable link on Wikipedia. It's, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And then uh, the sort of uh, supporting role is the girl, which is our lovely Lisa Welchel playing the role of Jody. And, uh, but it's really more about the boys. She does fit into the plot, but she's not kind of in the core group. But we start off the movie with meeting the four of them. And they all sneak out. There's this caper of them sneaking out and ducking behind a tree. And, ooh, there was a car. And, ooh, we saw Elka Summer. And I think she might be famous. And then when we finally get to the point of them arriving at whatever it is they're doing, they all jump into a lake and suddenly this, like it's called Live for Today. Yes. And it's like this suddenly this peppy sort of country tinged 70s pop tune. And it's them nighttime in their underwear, jumping and frolicking in this swimming hole and just throwing each other around. and In wet, tidy whities Ladies and gentlemen. Whities. Yeah. So if that's um, for you, you're going to enjoy this. But this weird bunch, it takes forever for the film to sort of sort out who they are, what their archetypes are, and we never really get truly focused, this one does this thing well, and this other one does this other thing well. And it takes 
so long for us to even be able to distinguish them. But the first thing that does strike you as they have been caught at the watering hole by the local policeman, which is the George Kennedy role, it's Chief Talisek. They call him Tally for short. And the kids call him Tally. Children. Yeah. Refer to him as Tally, not Chief Talisek. No. Fuck respect. Fuck yeah. your elders, you know? But the thing is, while they're drying off and there's conversation going on of them trying to explain and lie their way out of why they were at the swimming hole so late at night and not at school, as they're talking, they're drying off. So they're standing there in their underwear. And that's when it becomes apparent that uh, Billy Ray, he's the sort of country guy with the cowboy hat. And Foster, he's the, let's just call him the Italian-looking kid. And so the two of them are like 16 years old-ish, based on their ages on their IMDb. Then you have Specs, who is, that's the Dion Pride character. He is jacked. He, he's like, he is muscly. He's not like muscle-bound, but he is toned. And it's like, okay, so are you 30? Hanging out with these kids? I mean, he looks like a full-grown adult with fully developed uh, biological musculature. And it's like, wow. And then you have really the lead of the movie, the kid who is the star, the main one, uh, if there is a main one, and it's Homer. And Homer looks like a nine-year-old compared to them. I swear to God, he's probably nine or ten tops. Yeah, I couldn't figure out if he was six or if he was ten throughout the whole movie. <laughs> but the <clears throat> fact is, it would be one thing if he was, you know, twelve. Like, they were sort of all in this pubescent range or something. But these boys who are 16, maybe 17, I mean, that's at the tail end. They all had their, their deeper man voices. And yet you have this, he looks like Nicholas from season one of Eight is Enough. Like, he is just a, he looks like a little kid. And that doesn't seem to phase anybody, that they all go to the same school, they all live in the same dorm, and they all compete on the same football team. Yeah. And we see them in a football game. Even though and, they're clearly not in the same age range. No! Or, uh, for some reason, they've got this kid who could be six years old playing on their football <laughs> team. I don't think he's six. I <laughs> But he just is, and all that does is um, amplify his tininess, how much smaller he is. Now, if they want to make a joke about it, hey, you're, you know, you're, thir- you're a little shrimp for a 13-year-old or whatever, that's fine. But, woo, putting him on a football field with the shoulder pads where he is a full head shorter than yeah. all of his teammates, it's like, why is there a grammar school child competing on a high school football team? It was so weird. I was trying to figure out how old Dion was when, but I can't find anything. That no, says I couldn't find it. That's why I'm like, born. I think he was 30. I really yeah. do. But, um, uh, but the deal is we have all of them and they all have stuff to do in the movie. Probably Foster is the one that gets the short end of the stick where he doesn't do nearly as much as the rest. He's really just window dressing. Yeah. And... That's why it is surprising halfway through the film when another uh, member of their team joins the ranks when we are introduced to this amazing kid named Arthur. 
I want to hear how you would describe the character of Arthur. Um, Arthur is the... He's fulfilling the role of the computer nerd. That's what is clearly what they need him for, is they need his help. And the school getting... nerd. He's also... He's like... Because he's threatening, always threatening to go to the... He always... He doesn't break rules. Yeah, he's... Yeah, by the book. Yeah. Um, yeah, obedient, steadfast... He is so insanely nerdy. He has got the thick Coke bottle 1970s glasses with the big, gigantic plastic aviator frames. He has got the 70s sweater with the big, long shirt collar outside the sweater collar. He is, uh, he is just so insanely nerdy and unattractive. I refer to him as... Fourteen-year-old uh, David Almeida is kind of the type I sort of see him as. I cannot believe David, <clears throat> and this is coming from me. I cannot believe you were going to ignore the fact that yes, you described him as the nerd. He also <laughs> obviously went to the Gloria Swanson School of Acting. <laughs> like they might as well have said in the script. Arthur, a Gloria Swanson type. <laughs> or should I say our Norma Desmond type? Yeah, a Norma Desmond. <laughs> because his acting is... Am I not... Am I lying? Is he not... No. Like, even when he walks down the street, he is walking down that street. He is. He, he went to the Betty Davis Judy Garland School of Homosexuality also. We did not quite go there. Bless we, his heart. And we are he the is... last people in the world who would ever gay shame a teenager. But no. Holy shit. But so I like to describe his acting style as a young Matthew Arder. Oh. Um, <laughs> you and so I... he's got the looks of a young David Almeida, but the acting style of a young Matthew Arder. He could be our son, Matthew. <laughs> our boy. Our baby. <laughs> but what I love is... <laughs> And I mean this with all due respect because trans lives matter. But if they had named that character Pat, <laughs> I would not have known if it was a man or a woman. Yeah, there, there is definitely an androgyny about him, as there was about me when I was that age. So I could so sympathize. Um, there is a line, and I wrote down the line, where it had just a few too many S's in it. And I thought, oh, you poor kid. I loved him, though. Like, I was happy when he was in a scene. Uh, me too. Including um, the scene where he's crying. He cries. <laughs> he totally... Yes. Okay, I found it. Sorry. Hmm. A post office box and an answering service. And I thought, oh, bless child. Oh, my God. You, that was just a that was a gay minefield, and you just blowed yourself up, honey. Wow! One take, Arthur is what they <laughs> called him. Though. So nailed it. Yeah, nailed it. But God, I just and then yeah, at one point when it is revealed that it is an assassination plot, they do get to a point where it's at an impasse, and he turns around, he faces the window. And then finally, as they're talking back and forth, he just turns back and says, well, we can't just let that lady get killed. He's I the mean, only one who is this involved. 
that is emotional, that has any emotional connection. Hmm, because the sensitive boy. I wonder, wonder how that will translate into his adult life. Hmm. And the fact that I haven't even at this point in the film figured out why the boys care. Well, exactly. <laughs> like, why they're involved. Yep. Like, the script could have made it somebody important to them that is going to be assassinated. Yeah. Just otherwise, <laughs> they have no... They have no horse in this race. No. Well, other than the only thing I can think of is they are nothing if not inquisitive young lads. And the double MacGuffin to which the title refers, the, the two things that set the plot into motion is that while Homer is out in the woods, he stumbles upon a suitcase and he jimmies it open because apparently Homer's the, the pickpocket of the group, the 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 locksmith where he can pick any lock that's his special skill so he picks the lock of the briefcase and there are piles and piles of cash in it so he quickly puts it back stuffs it away tries to hide it in the woods and goes and gets the gang when they come back it is not there what is there matthew a dead body there's your second MacGuffin, my friend and while, yes, you just described those two things, we never find out who that dead body is or why he's in the plot, do we? You're right. But we do know that it was a, a hit hired by Ernest Borgnine. Because, do we? Yes, we do. Because the very lengthy and protracted introduction to the film... If you recall, the very first shots of the film are of trains yeah. uh, arriving at a train station. And then out comes a, uh, an African-American gentleman in a light brown leather jacket. And we see him uh, with, uh, the, with the, the briefcase, which we later find out has the money in it. Then we see a car pull up and he hands the briefcase to the person and says, it has to be done today. And then later, when Ernest Borgnine is in the restaurant with the goons that become his sort of his bad guy posse, that same guy in the leather jacket is with them. So we assume that because it's the same briefcase that Ernest Borgnine has and it's the same guy, at the very least, this was a crime somehow they were involved in committing. Now, how that translates into... Uh, the assassination attempt against Elka Summer, I don't know if I could get there, even if I tried to describe the rest of the movie. So, I mean, you're not wrong. It's just they're connected, and the kids, because they because they sneak out at night and go to the swimming hole in their underwear, and they're always throwing poor George Kennedy for a loop, we have a boy-who-cried-wolf situation. So they right. go to the cop, and they're like, we found money. He's like, well, where is it? It's not there. And they say, well, okay, we found a dead body. Well, where is it? It's not there. So he's just like, guys, would you leave me the fuck alone? I have real work to do. So, but every time they go back without the cops, there's something else there that like lets them know. Like They open the briefcase to see the, the money again, but there's a, a severed hand in yeah. it. Yeah, there's a hand in it. Like, so, I, for no reason. Like, yeah. And, who, and who's doing that? Yeah, and we don't know to whom that hand belongs either. That's the other thing. Oh, the hand belonged to the dead body. Oh, did it? Oh, okay. Yeah, because, because 
I went back and looked. They didn't kill another guy. Good. Because it's a severed hand, but for Mm -hmm. some reason it has the cuff of the jacket (laughs) that the person was wearing. (laughs) And it is the jacket that the dead body was in. Yeah. So bravo to the prop person for that detail. Bravo. (laughs) But the thing is, you know, as movies have just weird plot things where you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would they do that? The kids go back to the woods and they find the briefcase and there's a note pinned to it. Because earlier in the day, they had tried to get Ernest Borgnine noticed by the police, and it didn't work. And they did so very poorly. Uh, So what they did is they went back to the woods for some unknown reason. And there's a note saying, boys, I thought you deserved a hand for your performance this afternoon. And so they see the hand, and then they run off and leave it there. And then they come back. A minute later, and it's gone. So part of me is like, yeah, I know it's gross and weird, but considering on multiple occasions you've tried to explain yourself and failed, the idea is that, well, we got a hand in a case. Maybe in our panic and our fear, we need to just fucking grab it and run and get it to the cops. Well, and but I mean, even before that, when he finds that suitcase full of money. Mm-hmm. Take it with you. Exactly. And then I, because I put down, but then I deleted it because there is a reason he didn't take it with him. What was it? I don't don't remember. Yeah. But I'm sure he explained it at the malt shop where all five of the kids sat down with these big gulp sized, massive milkshakes. Yeah. That they did not drink. And then no sooner did they start talking, something made them run out of the restaurant. And they just kind of like threw down some money. And it's like, okay, uh, I do not believe in wasting food. And I do not fucking believe in wasting a milkshake. That was very offensive to me. Yeah, that bothered me. But uh, yes. Um, Oh, we forgot to mention that the Michael Gerard is the name of the actor who plays Arthur, our lovely little future David and Matthew. And he has one other credit. On his IMDb page, literally one other credit, where he was a receptionist on Seinfeld in 1992. And I texted Matthew, I texted you earlier with a video I shot from my TV screen of his literally one line. And you texted back, you had done the exact same thing. You were going to surprise me with a clip. Yeah, I was watching it thinking, I wonder if I'll recognize him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he it looks... is literally the exact same person without the glasses now. he really hasn't aged i mean if you think about it it's what um his 13 voice is years still later. the same his voice is exactly the same yeah and he looks exactly the same yes. as he did in 1979 <laughs> so him and lisa welchel must have drank from the same glass or something during the filming of this i know it's great i'm, I'm so proud of our son You know, really. It was really nice that we both wanted to check in on him. He is on a different level than everyone else in the movie. That's a good way to put it. And honestly, the fact that he had an entrance and an introduction, you know, that it was like, oh, here he comes now. And we need to convince him to join us. And it's we need you for this specific purpose, as opposed to this friggin you know, this deck of cards of 
random children that we were having to sort out for the first half of this movie. And even still, we're like, wait, what? so where are they? Are they, do they, I don't, where are the parents? Oh, it's, it's a boarding school. So the parents aren't in the picture, I guess. And I, it was just very nice because he did have um, something to kind of frame him better to give us a sense of who he is and where he fits into the rest of this this puzzle of a plot. I felt the rest of the cast was at the Godfather level, mm-hmm. and Arthur was at um, Hannah Montana level <laughs> of energy. Yeah. The, <clears throat> the other kids were in a Coppola movie. He was in a John Waters, I would say. Yes. <laughs> uh, and the way they convince him, did you hear the name? I listened to it multiple times, but he is basically like, no, I'm not going to be a part of this. And he walks out of the room. And just as he walks out of the room, Speck says, okay, then we're going to put it on the front page of the paper that you sleep with Ali Moffat's picture under your pillow. And then there's a pause in perfect comedic timing, I will say. The door reopens, and he says, okay, when do we start? Yeah. But it sounded like he said Ali Moffitt's. I turned on closed captioning. Oh. And the closed closed captioning said, for me, said Ali Moffitt. O-L-L-I-E. M-U-F-F-E-T-T. I I did a Google search for Ali Moffitt because I thought maybe it was a celebrity at the time. I, I did the same thing. But we have to assume that it is another student, but I don't know if it was Allie or Ollie. Like, yeah. I'm going to out you to everybody? Cause yeah, I thought, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Or was like, are we going to pretend he sleeps with a picture of a woman underneath Because <laughs> <laughs> no one will buy it. <laughs> no one. Yeah. Allie or Ollie? How deliciously <laughs> ambiguous. But honest to God, it's like every time he walked on, I wish that it's Pat had played or something. Yeah, a lot of people say, like, what's, what's that? that? Bless his heart. It's Pat. Yeah, it was very, but it was a very androgynous time. It was. I mean, that's that's was what it? I say to, as an excuse for myself and how I looked anyway. Um, let's talk about our dear Lisa Welchel. Let's get her involved in this. Do you want to talk about how she fits into the plot and what she does to help this all I, guess, I I figured I, I didn't really know. Like, again, I felt like that was a character point that they could have given one of the boys mm-hmm. to make him more vital to the plot. Like, oh, this guy is around because he's she's like the in charge of the newspaper or something. And she's, she's in charge fr- of the newspaper. Yes. So she, that's her job. But why not make one of the boys in charge of the newspaper? so that he has a reason for being there. You yeah. know, like, I, like, I don't know. Again, it was I, something. I agree with you. And Foster is really the one who has the least to do. You could probably have just cut Foster altogether. But Foster it- to me was the one who I felt was the mechanical one and should have been the one that was the computer genius. Because, yeah. I felt like he was the one that was constantly making up ways to hide things in the room. Was like, was that him? Because he was first the one that all, reached into the globe to get the chocolate out of the globe. Right, but they all okay. Let's talk about this dorm room here. Um, okay, fuck Lisa Welchel. We're going to talk about this dorm room. Um, first of all, who lives there? Am I correct? There are two beds in that room, right? I got that Specs and the six-year-old lived there. 
Okay. That's kind of what I gathered too, because Spex has a guitar that he was frequently playing, and the six-year-old's there. But this room is this, it's 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 like a, a villain's lair from a James Bond movie. Yeah. It's like they have things hidden where we start off the scene with them opening up a globe and there's candy inside the globe. But then the the window box uh, flips up and flips over and there's a, a, a cooler with ice and, and chilled drinks in it. Yeah. And then at one point, Specs later lifts up the bedspread, kicks under the bed, and on like a rotating thing, a, a toolbox appears where he also keeps some cash that he yeah. is pulling out for the thing. It's just like, okay, I'm, I'm all for gadgets and stuff, but it's like you would have needed a construction crew to come in and gut this room and rebuild it to have all of these hidden yeah. things with such perfect flush-mounted crown molding that make it undetectable. I thought it was like the a room in the Winchester house. Like, <laughs> like there's, there's. It's I, true. When he moved the bookcase and there was a phone that he had attached to the headmaster's line. So, so they could call long distance on a rotary damn phone without <laughs> operator assistance. Yeah. It's like, what is happening? And I mean, it was interesting. It was certainly interesting, but it was unjustified. And it would have been great. I agree with you. It would have been very nice if it had been... One of their character points was that he can build anything. But it's like, you, you couldn't hammer the nails... I don't even think screw guns existed in 79. People screwed things in by hand with a screwdriver. That whole setup would have taken an entire semester to install. Yeah. And, you know, and at one point they try to make a joke out of it. They're all during this this late night overnight cram session where they're going through these these lists from the computer to try and figure out who a murderer might be. And at one point you see um, you see Homer pull out some saltine crackers and put peanut butter on them and then top them with sardines. Yum. Hilarious. What, what six-year-old doesn't love sardines? Yeah. Uh, um, so well, then, a six-year-old who, by the way, also you were talking about family picture, pulls out a Playboy. Does he? Yes. I missed that. He pulls out when when they somebody knocks on the door and... Um, the people come in and he's, he, he's like, pretends like he wasn't watching. Oh, that was another thing. When he sits down to watch TV and he flips over his, yeah. his, um, his, his bed post and there's a TV there. Yeah, like built into his headboard bed frame. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. a TV in there. When somebody knocks on the door, they have to put it back. So he flips it back yeah. and then he gets on his bed and he pulls out a Playboy magazine. Yeah. And looks at the centerfold. And, and the whole room is, even when it's not, with their gadgets showing. We're talking, there's like this beautiful flush-mounted built-in bookcase work yeah. and, you know, beadboard around the frames of the of the beds and matching bedspreads, not a dorm where you bring your own linens. These are two right. matching 70s plaid bedspreads. It's, it's a very uh, insanely, illogically pulled-together room that it just stepped out of a, of a magazine or something for a <laughs> ragtag bunch of teenage boys to be jacking off in seven hours a day. Go um, on. Did I? Th no, I'm sorry. That was my out loud voice. What? 
but the deal is, if Foster, if they had made a reference that, oh, Foster, gee, you're so handy with the tools, or if you had seen him, you know, in putting something in, and that made him the gadget guy, right? Is is Homer supposed to be the gadget kid because of his lock picking abilities? One of the things I loved was the um, '80s tech that you see a lot of. Yes, but the Swiss Army knife that he had. Yes. Now, do you remember, David, as a child, wanting a Swiss Army knife and getting one and then realizing that it is literally good for nothing <laughs> that you ever need in your daily life? Yes, I Because did. you're and eight years old. Yeah, and, and you and I were not fucking going camping out in the woods with a bunch of goddamn bears. And I'm not ever carrying around my knife with with my bottle opener on it and and that little that can opener thing that was it was like your bottle top opener it's like yeah i remember like like wanting one and like creating reasons to use it meanwhile this kid whips it out and can pick a lock in nobody's business yeah and it's like three inches wide (laughs) it's got so many attachments including one that looks like a key for a briefcase. Like it's a, oh, I just happen to have this for just such an emergency. <laughs> That's what supposedly what the Swiss Army knife was, was. It was like they would sell it as like 71 gadgets in this tiny little compact thing. Yeah. And it's, uh, fingernail clippers. It's scissors. It's a screwdriver. Yeah. It's a bottle so opener. They do make a big deal out of that. But like I loved when he was picking the lock for the hotel. Do you remember when hotels had keys? But this relates to his uh, with the playboy. They do try to paint Homer as being uh, a mature kid, like a worldly kid. Uh, When he picks the lock because they're running from uh, Ernest Borgnine and company in the hotel, they quickly pick a random lock of a random room and just walk in the door. And of course, there's a couple fucking... And yeah. when they quickly grab the sheets, and I'm like, what the shit, man? What the hell? He just looks at them, just dead, just deadpan, just like, hey, it's fine. Don't stop on our account. We're going to be out of here in a minute. And not even playing it for comedy. Yeah. Like, not like, and then a very long shot of the couple uh, with their sheets on just staring at the kids. Like, yeah. they have no lines. Those actors yeah. have no lines. Well, and here's the other funny thing. Um, it is a, a plot device a couple of times that they need to clear out the hotel so they can get into Ernest Borgnine's hotel room yeah. to, to bug it with a walkie-talkie. Yeah, you know the quality of a walkie-talkie in the corner of a room where four people are, how that sounds as good as a cell phone from 2020? Yeah. Uh, but when they have to get the hotel cleared out, they pull the fire alarm, and it happens twice. And the second time, the people are coming out and they're like, oh, crap, can you, but again, Jesus, fuck. I'm paraphrasing. And they're all crowding out and going, filing down the hallway. And that door opens and the same couple comes out with the sheet wrapped around them. It's like they've been in that room for days fucking. Bravo. But that scene especially made me laugh because when they pull the fire alarm, they show the hallway and every... They show every person coming out of every room. And I said, it looked like that scene in Pee-wee's Big Adventure when he's walking on the back lot 
of the movie studio uh-huh. and he's passing like a cowboy and he's passing like um a, a Vegas showgirl costume because they literally had like oh. it looked like central casting. Yes. Like the door opens and fucking a Hasidic Jew walks out with his wife. The couple with walks out covered in their sheet. Yes. And then and then at the end, a fat guy in boxer shorts walking a poodle out. <laughs> That's right. That was the last image. Like it looked like it was like, well, what kind of wacky characters can we have come out of this this motel oh for no reason? Yep. No, you're you were so you're so right. It is it's it's crazy. So let's get back to Lisa Welchel. I don't even think we've gotten this, the listener into what this fucking movie is about yet. (laughs) Oh, we have. Okay. I mean, it's the the kids find the suitcase and then they find the other, the the thing, the suitcase and the body. They go to George Kennedy and George Kennedy is like, really? And in their accusing of Ernest Borgnine uh, as this, you know, shadowy, character dude guy with his cronies hanging around him uh basically george kennedy says i am done with you if 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 you fuck with this anymore if i have if you waste my time anymore i'm gonna get your parents involved and get you shipped off and you leave town like i'm done so the kids feel like they're on their own so they're like i think to kind of if there's any motivation, it is that they are like, well, we at least need to show that there's something fishy going on with this guy. So in the course of uh, the many ways they try to spy on him to figure out what's going on, they then uh, are, they then realize that he is not just involved in an assassination plot, but the assassination is Elka Summer, who is the prime minister? Yes. Of this... I believe a fictional country called Yes, Kabur. Kabur? Yeah. And uh some Middle Eastern country called Kabur, but um but Ernest Borgnine. And he is also playing to the back row of the balcony. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, so he is like her bodyguard, but there's also he's the one that's got these guys set up and there's going to be uh, an assassination attempt. Uh, uh, and Elkie Summer, the prime minister, her daughter apparently goes to this school because they've seen, the kids have seen her dropping her daughter off. That's okay. Not until which, you said that, did that make sense to me, but you're totally right. That is, that is which what's going on. I thought that was Blair's mother. It's not. But she drops off a cute little blonde girl oh, yeah. and they see her walk back to her car and then i thought well there's your other plot point that's why the boys care because oh, the mother it's blair's mother it's blair's mother is the one. jody actually jody's mother <laughs> but so um, why wasn't that the case you're right you're so right that's that's a good rewrite we can send back in the time machine we could make this a hit david we could i'm telling you <laughs> so the boys run into they they start um, following Ernest Borgnine around town and setting up their own stakeout yes. system. And somehow, after they've gone to get the briefcase for the last time with the hand in it, they left it there. Mm-hmm. They go back, it's gone. They yeah. see Ernest Borgnine on the street with the briefcase. With the briefcase. They somehow get George Kennedy to have him open it, and inside this magical fucking briefcase, <laughs> for absolutely no explicable reason. Nope. 
is panties. Panties. Ladies' underwear. I think that was considered a joke in 1979. Benny Hill was popular. I don't fucking know, and I don't get it either. You're right. And that's the point where George Kennedy is like, we're done. And you've just made me violate this man's constitutional right to privacy or some shit like that. So, yeah. So that's why they, that's the connection to, is that they see Ernest Borgnine with the briefcase that is unmistakably the briefcase that had the money in it. Then they go back to the woods again. I don't know why. And then that's where the briefcase reappears with the hand and then disappears a few minutes later and still ends up later in Ernest Borgnine's room where he apparently cleaned the blood of this severed hand out of it. Right. And, and, and Ernest Borgnine is what they, they follow him. And that's a problem I had with the directing was that it was filmed in kind of like a, like he wanted it to look like you were hiding behind something to watch Ernest Borgnine walk through this city. Yeah. You know, and he's, and of course, Ernest Borgnine is walking through the city like snidely whiplash. <laughs> he might as well have been like twirling his mustache, looking around at people. He's in a fucking trench coat and he's Ernest Borgnine. It's just, he looks guilty for fuck's sake. Come on. <laughs> and did you notice in this small little town, when they ever, they did street scenes, it was like Manhattan at five o'clock. <laughs> the hundreds of people walking around this tiny little town. Yeah, they had to dodge like to where so many people walking, along, can... the pedestrians. It was, yes. And if you watch in a couple of the shots, you can see where there's only people yeah. that are supposed to be in the shot. You can see past it where like the street is completely empty. <laughs> but just on this block <laughs> is where everybody is. But... I had a real problem with the amount of people that like tried to block his way. And, and I watched a lot of the extras that had no idea they were on film. <laughs> yeah. It's like, did, did, did everybody really sign a release here? I'm not so sure. No, I don't think they did. <laughs> um, speaking of this and the crowd scenes and the pursuit of Ernest Borgnine, when he is followed to his hotel by Billy Ray, this is the, McConaughey, Seth Meyers, young cowboy dude. He follows him to the lobby of the hotel. Borgnine goes into the restaurant. And so he's hanging out in what is apparently the the gift shop or whatever. And he is hiding behind a rack of paperback books. Yeah. What was the title of every one of those books, Matthew? Benji. Every goddamn one of them. It was a rack full of the novelization of the hit film Benji. All in this one hotel. And we came back to it multiple times. It wasn't it wasn't just an easter egg. It was a basket that was shoved in our fucking face. Oh my god, I couldn't believe it. I'm so glad you noticed it. <laughs> How could you miss it? Good oh my god. lord. Uh, another thing about the restaurant, Matthew. That waitress. Yeah. The um the Matthew McConaughey kid wants to get a peek of who uh, Ernest Borgnine is meeting up with uh, in the, in that restaurant. He wants to sneak a peek at them, but can't just walk in. So he walks in and he asks this waitress, uh, "Hey, yeah, I was looking for my dad. He's a tall guy, like." Uh, and she's like, "I'm sorry, we don't have anybody here. There's just that party." And you see his point of view as he kind of scans them. That's where we first realize, oh, that's the man in the leather jacket who first had the briefcase at the very beginning of the movie. But this waitress is dressed in one of those, you know, those French-made, <laughs> low-cut 
black with the white ruffle around the neckline. Yeah. And he walks up to her and says, excuse me. And she turns around. Yes, may I help you? And it's like, boom, boom, boobs. <laughs> this, this dress is so low cut. And, and it, I swear I can see Areola on her left one. I swear. It is like her breasts are so pronounced and so in the frame of the shot. Mm-hmm. It was like an Austin Powers, moly, 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 mole, I'm pleased to mole you. I need some guacamole. I swear to God he was just going to go, tits. I, I'm sorry. I was, I was looking for my boobs. My dad. My dad. And... Uh, he, and I, I just thought I'd check, hang out here for a nipple. Minute, minute. And the, <laughs> I'm sorry. You could rewrite that scene, and it would be comedy gold, my friend. Ah, oh, that would be. <laughs> yes. So we, we're still going to talk about Lisa Welchel here. Yeah. I really want to. Okay. She is the editor of the school paper, and when they need to find out information from George Kennedy of how to use this magical machine that runs background checks... A 1979 fax machine. Exactly. <laughs> Which, if that and, doesn't set your imagination aflame, yeah, get ready. It's true. <laughs> exactly. It's it's the size of an iron lung, and um, and it has and that's not including the dot matrix printer that is attached to it. But um, she is under the guise of doing an article for the school newspaper taking tons of pictures of George Kennedy. And she's like, oh, so uh, if you don't have fingerprints, how do you find out stuff about criminals? He's like, oh, well, we have this machine here. You see, we take a picture. It has to be exactly two and a quarter inches by two and three quarter inches. And I have to fill out the form exactly like this. And she's like, click, taking pictures. Then you put it in here and he's demonstrating how to do this thing. And she's like, snap, snap. Even to the point where... He's like, he's like, and here's the code for the FBI in Washington, D.C. Click. (laughs) And then I enter my social security number, which is 423. And it's so fucking funny how he tells her everything. But they precede the scene with, looks like this might be a job for a pretty lady or something like that, where I can give her the codes to the Cuban missiles. It's just a girl. What's she going to do with them? You know, it's totally safe. It's just for Uh, the school paper. Yeah. (laughs) Then she develops the pictures. She, uh, when they pull the fire alarm at the hotel the first time, they just stand outside with a zoom lens and take candid photos of Ernest Borgnine and company and manage to get perfect full-on face pictures that she can resize, put on that form, and then... How do they sneak into the police station after hours, Matthew, to use that machine? Well, that's... What is the distraction? The distraction was, dear listeners, (laughs) 11-year-old Blair calls... She's she's 16. That doesn't make it any better, but I'm saying it. She's 16. She looks 12. She's young. But um, 12-year-old Blair (laughs) calls in to the deputy on duty who I guess we can describe as um, Roscoe P. Coltrane yeah, because he's yeah. basically or Roscoe P. Coltrane's nephew or whatever who came onto the show towards the end yeah um, the yeah he's just like your your typical hick simple backwoods cop 
type. <laughs> so she calls him to tell him to turn on the radio mm-hmm. because she has made a radio song dedication to him. Mm-hmm. You remember dedications and song rec- radio? <laughs> This song goes out to Arthur. <laughs> Love from your two gay dads, David and Matthew. Uh, but the thing is, she doesn't know him. She's just this, right. and, and she turns on her Texas twang, because Lisa Welchel's from Texas. And she's like, hi there, how are you? And he's like, well, hello. Yeah. Voice that I don't even know if it's a child or an adult. And she's like, I just want you to know I think you're cute, and I put a song on the radio for you. Well, what are you doing later? I get off duty around midnight. Well, and she's just being all flirty. It's like, she's a child. And he's, I I don't know. It was a more trusting time back then, maybe. I I guess it was in in backwoods. What state are we in again? Virginia. Virginia. I don't know why I can't get that through my head. um, So he turns on the radio really loud. So he can't hear that the kids sneaking because they know the, the machine is noisy. Yeah. So that was all the plot. And she stayed uh, up late. Apparently, they don't have a fucking curfew for these children. She's in the office of the newspaper and kind of wakes up like, okay, at you know at two a.m. Yeah. Or whatever, you have to wake up to make the phone call to the police station because that's when we'll be there and we need the distraction. So again, it's this whole thing of, I get that the parents aren't there. But there is literally no other adult influence or supervision anywhere. They they have just they have complete and total control and freedom of how to run their lives. I kept thinking that this was um, like an Eastland school or like like. So I was thinking to myself, this is what the kids were doing at Eastland that weren't in the cafeteria Helping Mrs. Oh. Garrett. Like, this is how they filled their time. The kids yeah. from Bates Academy. Eastland and Bates all together, because this was a co-ed school. Right. Yes. So what all happens is they come up with these lists from the computer, and then they cross-reference it with the background check that the computer at the police station does. And through the process of elimination... They're able to connect stuff to Kabur, this this fictional country, and discover that Elka Summer, who is an alum of the school, who is going to be attending this alumni weekend, which we see them decorating the gym for, and that's how they they figure it out, blah, 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 make long-distance phone calls. So now they know who is being targeted, and they know that they got to stop Ernest Borgnine. So it really becomes a, we need to stop Ernest Borgnine and get somebody to catch him at something. And somehow they have figured out that this assassination attempt is going to take place on Saturday at the homecoming dance or whatever at the alumni party. So I don't know how they figured out when, but we figured, we realized there's, at some point, we figure out as an audience that the kids know where and when this is going to take yeah. place. Oh, well, because when they're in the gym and they're putting up the crepe paper and shit, they look around and Borgnine's goons are the decorating committee. Remember that? Uh, yeah. It's like, but, so what the, so the, I guess the idea is that, well, if they're not, they must be there to case the joint 
why else would they be there? I think that's the logistical leap they make. All right. Um, so here's the funny thing. How the movie culminates in the denouement, as it were, is that uh, Arthur gets George Kennedy to drive him to the hotel under the guise that there is a gambling ring being run by Ernest Borgnine. And he says, and there's a gamble. What does he say? Like, you have to get him into the trunk. There's this this footlocker that had a bunch of guns and weapons. So the kids are like, you have to get the cop to the hotel room and in that footlocker, because that's likely probable cause, that will make him take a closer look at them and wonder what's going on. So I don't know if he's like, Hey, there's a gambling paraphernalia in that footlocker. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck it is. But to uh, case out the room ahead of time, the boys, meaning uh, Homer and Specs, they pull the fire alarm. That's that second fire alarm with the central casting call. And they discover they're still in the room when Ernest Borgnine and company show up. So we have this moment of tension where... The goons come into the room and you're like, oh, fuck, are they going to get caught? Then it's like they they are nowhere. So it's like, where are they? Are they under the bed? What where where they're hiding? Clearly. Well, we get George Kennedy, the cop in the room and opens up the footlocker empty. The magical footlocker is empty, just like the magical um, briefcase. briefcase. <laughs> Is empty. Just and then, disappears in it. And then he pulls out a long string of multicolored <laughs> yeah. handkerchiefs tied together. <laughs> and it's got Ernest Borgnine's underwear at the bottom of it. <laughs> so then, um, somehow one of them calls the room, and George Kennedy answers the phone, and they're like, look in the closet. And in the closet, Speck and Homer have tied themselves up so that it looks like they are being held there. That it looks like they've been kidnapped. So that's when George Kennedy is like, oh, you're obviously your kidnappers taking you into custody and they've caught the bad guy. That's pretty much the end of the movie. Now, one wonders, Matthew, in a rewrite, when there's an assassination attempt and it's going to be happening in a public place, at an event. Why is there not some type of a scene that happens at the actual event? You know there could have been guys with crosshairs and guns aimed up in the rafters. and it's It would have made for so much more intrigue as opposed to driving to a hotel room, footlocker's yeah. empty, open the door and they're tied up. And it's like, it was such yeah. an anticlimactic climax. This international assassination plot mm-hmm. ends in a hotel room with George Kennedy and a six-shooter. Yes. <laughs> Holding Borgnine and three goons yeah. at gunpoint. And, uh, yeah, and the others. And right down to when they're uh, clearing out the room and, like, cuffing the guys and booking them, Dano. Yeah. That's when they lift up the mattress and that's where the guns are. It's like, oh, they hid them because they thought someone might be coming. And that's the moment when you see Homer reach into the potted plant and pull out the walkie-talkie he put there that thankfully nobody noticed. Yeah. And sneak it away like, oh, they're not going to find out what's going on here. And then um, at the very, very end, 
they do give George Kennedy all of the documents that show the assassination attempt. It's yeah. that whole thing of just because the police have you in their possession, they can figure out whatever the crime is that applies to be able to sentence you. It's like, yeah, kids, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't sleep in my own bed that night because it's very <laughs> likely Ernest Borgnine is not going to be held in custody due to entrapment and lack of probable cause and uh, uh, probably a host of legal snafus that were created by the kids being involved in this plot. Yeah, there were. <laughs> so, uh, and then the other thing is that they fake being kidnapped. So maybe yes. it's not a good idea. As, as the men are being walked out of the hotel, the very crowded hotel lobby, again, the extras were paid well that day. When they're walking out, all the kids, they're like, we did it! Woohoo! And they're hugging. It's not, oh my God, you were kidnapped. I was so worried about you. It was just like high fives and yeah, we fucked that dude over. Yeah! And then them waving to George Kennedy from across the bridge. Before the credits roll. God bless. God bless. Ah. <sighs> We somehow made it to the end of the movie. Is there anything else within there that we didn't touch on that you wanted to? I I well, you know, I love the nostalgic things. Oh yes. So I was like noticing little things like a hotel room with an actual key. Um, Ernest Borgnine throws something away in a glass ashtray that's just sitting on a on a table in a lobby in the of, of a hotel. Lobby. Yes. Um. But my favorite thing is old computers, and that 1979 fax machine was one thing. But when they go to Archie, Arthur, when they Arthur. go to Arthur, they go to him because he can get them. He's the only one who knows how to work the computers. Mm -hmm. So the kids have to go to the computer lab. And you remember when yeah. computers first came out, every school had a computer lab. Yeah. Where you went to this room where there were eight or nine computers. And you would play Oregon Trail for 45 minutes. <laughs> but, yes. um, and again, but, the dot, just a dot matrix printer in and of itself was like, oh my God. Yeah. Like this amazing technology. But he goes in there to, um, to hack their system or whatever. And he's got this giant table size, like one of those books that you take sections out of. Yeah, yeah. You know, like with computer codes and he's got to write down stuff yeah. before he can type it into the computer and all the shit yeah. that, that has changed as far as that goes. Yeah. And, he couldn't just Google it. Yeah. And Lisa Welchel asking the police officer how long it takes to send that fax and get the information to Washington. Mm -hmm. He goes about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and, she, and they can't get over how fast that is. Yeah, like they're like, they actually that was. <laughs> I mean, it was for those days. Uh, you're continuing the nostalgia. the The hotel itself, the room. When we go into the hotel room, it is one of those '70s. The the mustard colored bedspread, and the orange shag carpeting, and the gold comfy swivel chair, the fully upholstered gold uh, furniture, the dark wood. It is just. Oh, my God. It is all the ugly, beautiful everythings. That was 1979 high fashion. And the um, the restaurant in the lobby, just so heavy 
Like, it's just the colors were heavy. It had heavy curtains. Oh, the dark mahogany colors, yes. It looked like the Regal Beagle in there. <laughs> but it's like yeah. reds and browns. Yeah. And you know that room smells like a fucking casino because the people oh. smoking in there and getting into that... The, Oh, yeah, it was probably gross. a drop tile ceiling, but they were yellow, nicotine stained. You know. Right. Uh, what else? What else? Do uh, you oh, uh, another thing about the lack of focus of the character of Foster, the Ralph yeah. Macchio one. The only other hint to his character that never comes back, well, two hints. One is that he might be a smarty because at one point the, the McConaughey kid says, hide here behind this bush. And he says, oh, only this guy could call a horribilis computerolibus a bush. Like, he knows, the, yeah. he knows the genus and the species of this particular plant. Right. And, and then the other thing, later when they're hanging out and we see them, it's while Spex is on the phone. There are these cutaways of the boys making all the disgusting food. Foster is playing with a hermit crab. Did you notice that? No. At one point, he's just sitting there playing like there's something in his hand just kind of crawling around while he's thinking. And I, I have to admit, I didn't really know what a hermit crab looked like. I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> so I did a little Googling and I'm like, oh, it was a hermit crab. What? So they also have a functioning terrarium in all of the gadgets in this room. Sure. Where they also have not just food, not just TV and tools and weapons of mass destruction they also have a, a, they have goddamn pets in this room yeah <laughs> i don't get it i don't get it and and nothing there that all this does is just make foster more of a all over the place who is he in the group and um and it's and it's a shame because like you said we could have we could have just eliminated him or let arthur be foster let that be the character um, right. the, but as I said, I would not give up Arthur's entrance in his introduction. I would not give that up for all the tea in China. I'm sorry. Oh, there's also a chase where <laughs> the kids have to outrun Ernest Borgnine. And Arthur, I shit you not, is he's like always falling behind, just like, eh, eh, eh. It, it, it was one step away from, I don't have my inhaler. I'm starting to hyperventilate. I can't run as fast as this. I don't know how to be physical. Yeah. This 15-year-old boy can't outrun Ernest Borgnine. 62-year-old <laughs> Ernest Borgnine, who he did have a scene where he ran, and it is not pleasant to watch. <laughs> oh. I'm just going to go on record saying, ooh, boy. But it's fun you to know. watch because he's got to dodge about 800 people on the street. <laughs> <laughs> this fucking block in this tiny little college town. Yes. But yeah, did I, drive, I drove home enough the point that why were they decorating this hall for the homecoming and then nothing ever happened there again when it would have obviously been the place that, you know, anyway. Right, that's where they, they should have nabbed Ernest Borgnine. Yes, exactly. Because gotten... we, don't, we, we don't get to see Elkie Summer react to the fact that her head of security was planning to assassinate her. Yeah. Yes, like, exactly. She should have been the one to press charges and charge him with treason at yes. the end of the... 
at the end of the show. Yeah, like, and then thank the boys in on yeah. behalf of her country. And this, I'm very sure, will help uh, the Middle East peace talks to progress. Right. <laughs> Which was a thing in 79. I mean, they totally could have made this like, these well, boys I mean, saved the day. It's on the, it's on the newspaper. That, yeah. That he reads. That there are Middle Eastern peace talks. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And that was the thing in the late 70s and getting into the Reagan years and all that. So it could have been like, you boys have saved the world because if I had been assassinated, it would have been an international incident and they would have launched the missiles right then and there. So we these boys could have saved the earth if, if they had made the movie that you and I wanted them to make. And if you think that's outlandish, don't forget this director made a movie called Benji Saves Christmas. <laughs> so, so there's that. Oh, dear. Uh, and then the other thing is that the night of the going through the charts. And the th- it is I so... wrote down 15 minutes of them looking at paper. Oh, <laughs> there's no sense of urgency Mm-mm. at all. Mm-mm about what is going on here. I've already previously said it takes us so long to kind of get into where are these kids, who are these kids, and how do we distinguish and separate them personality-wise. It is 19 minutes into the film when he finds the money, when Homer is in the forest and finds the money. So 19 minutes... And we've only other seen the others swimming in the swimming hole. Like, we yeah. haven't seen them existing in the daylight in their everyday and all that. That's how long it takes for this thing. Didn't, didn't you text me? Yes. I texted <laughs> you. This movie goes nowhere fast. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is a long exposition. <laughs> yeah. It is in building up. And, and the fact that it was so unnecessary, particularly... The Orson Welles. Again, the director was like, clearly the audience is going to be too stupid for this, so let me write it into the script what this movie is. Maybe this is the movie that should have had a... That's what it is. That's what it is. Foster didn't need to be a character. Foster should have been their dog. (laughs) This should have been a Benji movie. This should have been Benji Saves the Middle East. Right. That's what, we just fixed this entire movie. Benji saves the world. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's all it would take is just that what little Foster does, sadly, it's, you know, no no diss to the actor. And again, he's the only one that still has a career. Yeah. Uh, no diss to him. It's just the character was written with the least to do in the movie. They should have made him the dog. And this could have been a Benji movie. And that would have fixed literally every single thing that you and I have discussed. Literally. Literally. <laughs> well, it's it still surprises me that this was not a TV movie. This was a theatrical release in the yeah. cinemas. And yet, to me, it feels like a TV movie. It really does. With the low budget, with the lack of there being the big event at the end where everything all comes flying together and the problems are solved. So, Yeah. <sighs> Well, Matthew, I think we have solved yet another problem, rewritten another movie, and yeah. fixed the world of entertainment by virtue of our own amazing, incredible, observational talents. I think so, too. We have solved the double McMuffin. <laughs> or the Doc McStuffins. <laughs> 
And speaking of which, I, I think I am hungry for a little bit of dinner, and it's getting to be that hour. And I'm so sorry we're on the on the we're on Zoom right now. Otherwise, I would be able to offer you one of my wonderful food spreads that you always enjoy whenever you come to my house. Oh, like what a piece of toast with uh, some sardines on it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, guys, it sounds like this is wrapping Oof. up yet another edition of TV Talkaholics. Thank you so much for being sponsors of the show of Let's Face the Facts and of me and Matthew. And uh, Matthew, what are what are your parting words to our listening friends? Whew. If you want to spend two hours wondering what you're doing, you should watch the double McMuffin. I, M- McGuffin, dear. I thought he was the... The crime dog. No, <laughs> that's McGruff. The double. There's the, your dog. There's, there's the, your dog. Ah, it could have been the double McGruffin. There it is. <laughs> ah. And it would have been take a bite out of crime. <laughs> oh my God! Pop culture collides in and our brains. A, and right it's there. a pun on top of that. That's that's beautiful. All right. Uh, well, we cannot top that. So, yes, I think we have two um, thumbs up-ish? Ish? Maybe a thumb around 2 o'clock. A yeah. thumb around you know 2 what? o'clock. I say you definitely need to watch the movie. It is available on YouTube. Uh, but have your phone handy. You might want to check your emails. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, or, you know, go on the web and Google something. Check your stock portfolio during but some of the But at the same time, parts. at the same time, though... It's one of those where if you miss one little thing, you're like, wait a minute. I had to rewind it several times. I did too. Like, I did to too. To be like, did yeah. I miss something that is yeah. vital to the plot that just they didn't Damn make it. a big deal out of? <laughs> yeah. It's one of those so. movies that demands your attention and then does not reward you when you give it to it. <laughs> yeah. But you should yeah. watch it. <laughs> Why not? What sure. are you going to do? Watch The Office for the 80th time? <laughs> All right, Matthew, my darling, it seems like we're wrapping it up for another month. Tune in again next month for another edition of TV Talkaholics and uh, Smooches and Goodbye. Oh, we have to end it with our goodbye and thank you in our Mrs. Garrett voices, okay? All right. One, two, three. Goodbye and thank you. When you find somebody who cares Don't you let it go slipping away Cause when you find someone with love to share Hey, you're headed for a better day It's a big cold world we're living in You need some help along the way Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by the wonderful David Almeida. Our theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Please visit facethefactspod.com for supplemental photos and videos, links to social media, and ways that you can support the show. 
And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This is Matthew Arder saying tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts.